You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara in St. Catharines, Ontario. For more information, please feel free to contact us by visiting our website, harvestniagara.ca. God, as we open up your word, there's two things we want to proclaim and declare this morning. And the first one is this, is that we are completely dependent upon you. Father, we know that we live and we breathe and we have our being only in you and you alone. Father, we are totally depraved men and women. We cannot only not just live this life without you. We cannot live righteously without you, God. We can't see the excellencies of you through your word without the power of the living God opening our minds and our hearts and our eyes to see. And so, God, we declare dependence upon you today and ask, oh God, that you come and in us do what only you can. Father, I also declare that we're dependent upon you for every every aspect of our souls, God. Some coming in discouraged today. We can't encourage ourselves, God. Would you encourage us? Some coming in doubting today, God. We can't take the doubts away. Father, would you help us in our doubt? Father, some coming in with such hard, difficult things on our hearts that we can't seem to pull ourselves out of the pit. Father, would you do that for us? And cause us all to turn our eyes to Jesus this morning and see and look full into your wonderful face. God, the second thing we want to declare today is that we want to declare that we love you. Plain and simply, God, there is no one that has shown us the love that you've shown us. We can't find the love that our Father gives us anywhere in this world. The love that truly satisfies our souls. And so, God, because you first loved us and while we were still far away, drew us near, God, we want to simply say today, we love you, Lord. We love you from the bottom of our hearts. There's no greater person in this universe that we can give our hearts to than you. There's no greater person that we can follow hard after than you, oh God. And so, Lord, as we declare our dependence and our love for you, Father, we simply ask that you'd open us up to what you have to speak into our lives today for our good and for your glory. Speak to us now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat and flip your Bibles open with me to the eighth book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, one of the ushers will be happy to get one into your hands. The the eighth book of the Bible is the book of Ruth. This is a small book, and uh, so many just skip right over it, but it's a meal that we cannot skip over because not only is it tasty, but it is healthy for you. And so it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Don't go too fast because you go flying right by Ruth, as many people do, and you'll miss it. But we don't want to miss it this morning. So the book of Ruth is where we're going to be for the next four weeks. It's one of two books of the Bible that is named after a woman. Only two books of the Bible named after a woman. The other one is being Esther. Contains four chapters of 85 verses narrating an amazing story of how God reached out and pulled in a Gentile woman into his overall plan of redemption for us through Jesus Christ. And you only find Ruth mentioned in the Bible in two places, one in the book of Ruth and two in, get this, Jesus' genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Other than that, the Bible is silent on Ruth, yet so significant of a role she plays in our lives, in the lives of all believers, that we can't miss what she has for us in her book, this book dedicated to her. 
In fact, so significant is Ruth that the Jewish people, once a year, there's five books, once a year they read through the entire thing to celebrate certain seasons of the Jewish tradition, and this is one of the books they read. They read the book of Ruth every year at the Festival of Weeks or Pentecost because of the harvest scenes in chapters 2 and 3 and because this is so significant for our lives. John MacArthur says this, what Mona Lisa is to paintings is what the book of Ruth is to biblical literature. Why is that? Because it opens our eyes and our hearts to a couple of God's beautiful truths, some beautiful themes that God has for us that are crucial for us in knowing the fullness of God in our lives. So before we even get into the text, I just want you to be looking for this theme, these two themes as we go throughout this whole next four weeks. And the first theme I want you to look for is this. It's God's covenant kindness. It's God's covenant kindness. The Hebrew word is hesed. Or God's sovereign care for his people. This word, this concept has said is used mostly of God in the Bible. It does refer sometimes to man's interaction with each other. But it is it's the covenant kindness of God towards his people. This word has said wraps up all the words of faithful, love, kindness, and loyalty. It wraps all those things into one nice, nice neat, tidy ball. And we're going to see the kindness that has said of God in the lives of Naomi, in the lives of Ruth, and ultimately in our lives through this book. Second theme is this. It's God's redemption. Inseparable from the kindness of God is his ultimate redemption. You will find in this book 23 times redemption, redeem, redeemer, as this book ultimately points us to our perfect and final redemption in Jesus Christ. That's why I've entitled the series, My Redeemer, because this is all about our Redeemer, Jesus, ultimately. And so these two themes are not just things we ought to know, but these, these are actually testimonies of every one of God's children, that God's covenant kindness has come and redeemed us for his own. All those who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and turn from their sins and turn their faces to God have this as their testimony and their story, the same way that God interacts with the characters of Ruth. So we can be sure, get this, we can be sure he will interact with our lives as we live for his glory. Ruth chapter 1 is where we are, four chapters, four weeks. We're going to tackle a lot of material in one sermon, so stick with me. The title of this sermon is simply this. is the first thing you need to know about Ruth. It's this, God's kindness in my chaos. God's kindness in my chaos. Let me read for you the first five verses to help us understand exactly how amazing the hesed and the redemption of God is. Ruth chapter 1. If you look at the little subtitle there, you already know it's going to be a bad scene. The subtitle says, Naomi widowed. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Epaphrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there or lived there. But Elimelech, husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah. Don't get that mixed up with Oprah. And the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and then both Melon and Chilion also died so that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. 
I don't know about you, but right off the bat, this strikes me as, man, this is a, this is a hard scene. My heart immediately goes out to Naomi. I'm thinking, I, I wouldn't wish something like this on the people I like the least. And if you're like me, the question goes in these circumstances where things get so difficult and so hard, the one question that always pops up in our minds is this, well, where in the world is God in this? You ever thought you caught yourself asking that question? Like, where in the world is God in this circumstance? No doubt Naomi was asking the same question, but here's the point I want to bring from, from the first five verses. It's simply this. God sometimes ordains dire circumstances in our lives. Somehow we've gotten to this point in our North American theology that it's all going to be fun and games. It's all going to be rosy. Once we have God, nothing bad is going to happen. That is not the story that Ruth is telling us in the life of Naomi. But the story that we have in the life of Naomi is that God ordains sometimes dire circumstances in our lives for his ultimate purposes. Here's the setting of Ruth. Jewish tradition says Samuel wrote this book, although many people would claim its authorship is unknown. We ultimately don't know, but I choose to believe Samuel probably wrote this book. What we do know is the setting. The setting of this book is, look at verse one, chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the... Judges rule. This is a book that is set in the time of the judges. In other words, it comes after the judges in the Bible. Joshua judges Ruth. The book actually can take it out and put it within the time of the judges. It happened somewhere in the time of the book of judges. And the book of judges was a tough scene for God's people. If you flip right back to the first, the second chapter of judges, it tells us what was happening in this time. In verses 6, Judges 2, 6 to 3, 6, it tells us that, look at chapter 2, there's Israel's disobedience. This is a time of anarchy when God's own people walked away from their God. Evil was prevalent, it says, in this, in this chapter. Sin and sensuality became celebrated and moral sickness was the norm for God's people. Idols galore, the people worshipped anything and everything but their God. If you flip back to the end of Judges, it summarizes the whole book of Genesis. It sets us up for it in Genesis 2, tells us the scene, but then the whole book was this topsy-turvy life of God trying to call his people back and them being so stubborn, they were all over the place. And verse 25, the last verse of Judges says this, Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You know what's happening? God's people are walking around. They're like, God who? Who cares? We don't need God. We don't want God. And of course, what, is that, what kind of response do you think you get from a God who loves his people? A loving God wouldn't just let his people rebel against him and walk far away from him and make a mess of their lives, right? And so God, God scolded them many times. He called them back in deaf ears to the scolding of God. God even spanked them a few times, the proverbial spanking. You know what they said? Didn't hurt. And so what does God finally do in his, in his righteous wrath and righteous indignation towards his people? He cut off their sustenance. Scolding didn't work. Spanking didn't work. He cut off his sustenance, their sustenance. He caused a famine in the land. Famine is one of those things that 
of a measure of drastic discipline that God used to get the attention of his stubborn children. Leviticus 26 is one of the places this is pointed out to us. It's not that God is mean. It's not that God is vengeful. It's that God loves his people too much and he'll do whatever it takes to get them back in a relationship with him and on the right path. That's what this teaches us. And so there's a Tough scene. You think about this. This is the promised land, and there was famine in the promised land. Bethlehem means house of bread or plenty, but guess what? The, sh- the cupboards were empty in the land of plenty. I believe as we read this, the, f- the famine was caused by the people's rebellion against the Lord, and so he was drawing them back. Although commentators are split on this. Some, some say it was, just, it was just a random happening that... that uh, not random, but a, a God's happening that just set this whole series into motion that he could bring about his ultimate redemption. Either or, the case is this. That God used famine to set this beautiful drama into motion, but this famine caused a crisis in, in, his, in his children. Two of the, the good people living in this land were Elimelech and Naomi. They were the kind of the spiritual pillars of their community. The, Elimelech means, my God is king. Naomi means pleasant. They were living this comfy little pleasant Christian life and their bubble was burst. And they're like, what's going on? What's going on? And so instead of just simply waiting upon the Lord in the promised land, here's what they came up with. They came up with a plan. You know what? I'm going to figure this thing out on my own. Picture the conversation in their house. Naomi, what are we going to do? There's no food. We've got to close the kids. What are we going to do? Well, I don't know, honey, we could try and figure something out. Elimelech, well, I know, let's go to Moab. Done, let's do it. Sounds pretty innocent here, but really going to Moab was the least, the worst place they should be going. Go anywhere but Moab. Moab is the nation that always opposed and oppressed God's people from the beginning. They were anti-God. They were, they were God-haters. They worshipped Molech, and God brought down the sanctions on them because of their wickedness in the Old Testament. He excluded them. He cursed Moab and he excluded them from the assembly of the Lord for 10 generations. Not like 10 years, but 10 generations don't come into the assembly of the Lord. And he said to his people, hey guys, if there's a nation I don't want you to seek peace with or intermarry, it's the Moabites. So this wasn't like, a, hey, let's go to the next best destination. Let's go to where all the other Christians gather in the, in the winter and go down to Florida and have a nice little Christian community there. This is like, when you travel, go around Moab. They went right to the place where God said, don't go thinking that I know better than God. Sinclair Ferguson helps us understand this better by saying this. Here's what Elimelech and Naomi did when they went to Moab. They forsook the only place on earth God has specifically given his people as a place he has promised to bless and provide for all of their needs. It's like a good plan to you or a bad plan. Bad plan. It was a bad plan. Look what happens after they put this plan into action. They get to Moab and Elimelech Elimelech dies. And Naomi's left with her two sons. Her two sons, Malon and Chilion, that means sick and pining, physically sick and pining, spiritually sick and pining. They marry these Moabite women and Sometime after that, they join their father six feet under and leave Naomi going like, wow, what a 10 years. Couple weddings, 
three funerals. I think we learn already that there's it's a good lesson for us already in this passage that it's never yet good to give up on God and take matters into our own hands, is it? Would you not agree with that? How quick we are to get frustrated with God and say, God's not doing what I think he should or how he should or when he should. And so we get frustrated. We take matters into our own hands only to find that it only makes stresses and messes much greater in our lives. And it leads not just to a physical famine, but to a spiritual famine. This is where Naomi sits in a physical, spiritual famine of like, oh my goodness, now what? I don't doubt it's unlike some even people in, even in here today. We've all been there, haven't we? Do you nod with me? We've all been there. Some people even probably in here today walk in with this same thing going on in their, in their lives, a spiritual famine and, and not sure exactly where things went wrong, whether you've orchestrated this or not orchestrated this, but, but coming in here with this, this emptiness going, where are you, God, when I need you most? Maybe you've gotten tired of waiting for the Lord to deliver you and you've left God far behind. You've made that decision a long time ago. He's gone. Maybe you've been frustrated with your circumstance and decided that you're going to still call yourself a Christian, but from now on, you're going to do it your way. Maybe you have, by no choice of yours, just found yourself in hard times and you're ready to give up on God and his good plan for your life. Couple things for all of us. We can learn something from this. Let's, let's learn this from Elimelech and Naomi to learn this. Instead of run, running from God, let's trust God and wait it out for his deliverance. Amen? Instead of running away from God, let's draw near to God and wait it out for his deliverance because God will always come through for his people. We're going to learn that as the story goes on. Learn that, but know this. If you're a child of God this morning, what the book of Ruth is going to show us that even in your worst decision and most painful circumstance, God still has a plan for you that, that extends far beyond your mess and is infinitely superior to anything you could have ever hoped for. Do you get that? Can't miss it. Know this. Learn this. Better to wait it out with God. But know this. If you're a child of God this morning, even in your worst decision and your most painful circumstance, God still has a plan for your life beyond your mess, and it's infinitely superior to anything you could ever hope for or imagine. That's an awesome reality of the God that we love and serve. Romans 3.3 says this, our faithfulness cannot possibly, our faithlessness cannot possibly nullify God's faithfulness as we're about to learn in every dire circumstance, God is already working out his awesome plan of redemption in the lives of those that love him. It's hard to see when you're in the midst of the mess, isn't it? I'm sure if you ask Naomi, is, is, is God in this? Is God going to do something? I'm sure she's like, I don't think so. I haven't heard from that guy for forever. But even though we can't physically see it, sometimes we have to, in these times, not respond like Elimelech and Naomi and run in fear. We have to respond by God's grace in faith and ask God, God, give me faith to believe that you are still in this and that your kindness will never abandon me. In every dire circumstance, God is already working out his awesome plan of deliverance. Here's point number two as we read on. God's kindness will never abandon me. 
Even if it seems hopeless, even if it seems it's the worst possible scenario you could have ever dreamed up for yourself, God's kindness will never abandon you, just like he didn't abandon Naomi. Let me read verses 6 to 18 quickly to get you caught up on the story. Then she arose with her daughters in law to return from the country of Moab. Forget this, she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal with you kindly as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. See what's happening? Naomi thinks, well, I'm all alone, so let's just push everybody else away. They said to her, no, we're not, we're going to return with you to your people. But Naomi was insistent. She said, no, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I any sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter. She's getting bitter. Not seeing God, but getting bitter. To me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. She was out. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she had no more. She said no more. You don't quite see it right off the bat, but if you look closely in that passage, you will see this. Even though Naomi feels that God has completely abandoned her, God is in fact showing her rays of hope and loving kindness every step of this hard, horrible journey that she is on. And if you look closely, even though Naomi is like the female version of Job and she's helpless and hopeless, if you look closely, you will see the overarching shadow of God presiding over every single step of this seemingly insignificant child of his. Naomi can't see it yet, but God is still there. Naomi's life is a lot like the rite of passage into adulthood for young Cherokee native boys. Here's what happens in the life of a young Cherokee native boy from what I read in literature. Whether it still goes on today or not, I don't know. But what would happen with these young boys is they would go from childhood to adulthood. One of the passage of rites would be that their, fa- their father would take them out into the woods and he would put them on a stump and blindfold them. They'd have to sweat it out and sit it out the whole night on that stump, blindfolded until the morning light came through their blindfold. And when the morning light came through their blindfold, then they could rip it off and find their way home. And they've actually gone from childhood to adulthood. They've become a man through that ceremony. There'd be a lot of old boys if that was us today, wouldn't there be? That'd be a 40-year-old boy still. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the, the fear of being 12, 13 years old and sitting, listening to the, the 
wind rustle through the trees and the creaking and all the, it's an animal for sure. Can you imagine that? But get this little known to the little Cherokee boys was this. When their father would sit them down on the stump and blindfold them, all he would do is take 10 steps backwards and sit down right behind them and guard them all night long while they sat out in the middle of the dark forest thinking they were all alone. The whole time right behind them was their father caring for them and watching over them and protecting them. This is the exact same as what's happening in Naomi's story. This is the same that happens in our stories. Even though we can't always see God, even though we get discouraged, we get frustrated, we get scared, we can't see, we think that God's abandoned us. Actually, in reality, God is sitting just a few steps behind us, not just watching over us and caring for us, but also orchestrating every little detail of our lives that we might have a greater glimpse of him and a greater place in history, his story. This is Naomi's reality. And so in these verses, I know there's a lot here. I just want to pull out for you three evidences of God's kindness that we see in verses 6 to 18. God's covenant faithfulness to his child that we trust can be also true in our lives. The first one is found in verse 6. Just when you think all is lost, verse 6 comes, and we see this. That in the midst of the field... Doing what she's doing, she gets word that the Lord visited his people and has given them food. This is the first ray of hope for Naomi. This is the first, like, there's something good. This is, I don't know if it was a, uh, the Moabite news had it on the front page or something. Hey, God's broken the family, returned to his people. I don't know if it was a giant email that went out to all the Jewish people that laughed. Hey, come back. God's back with us. But somehow Naomi got word of this and it was like that, that little glimmer of like, maybe there is some hope. For her soul, it was like a sip of hot chocolate on a freezing cold winter night. Maybe it's true. Maybe God does still love me. Maybe God still is for his people. The Lord has visited his people. This is, this is so true that we need to remember as we go through difficult times, we go through hard times. Even though we feel far from God, guess what? God doesn't just wait for us to come back. He actually comes and visits his people and comes after us. Whether it's been a wrong choice we've made that's alienated us from God, or maybe just a circumstance that we've been dealt with in life and we feel like we're far away from God. Get, get this, God will not be far for long. He will always come after his children. Like every good father, God can't remain angry at you forever. His anger is righteous and it's right, but he will not remain angry forever. Like any good father, God will not just let you go through the hard things forever, feeling abandoned. He will come after you. Let's be honest. I think I'm a good father, but I'm far from being a perfect father. And yet no matter how hard I try some days, I just can't remain angry with my kids. Sometimes they deserve it. And they know what buttons to push. My kids are really good at pushing my buttons. They know exactly which ones to push at what time and what sequence to get me going. Zach's a pro. Maya's pretty darn good too. And Nicholas is coming along. He's got to cry. <laughs> but you know what? At the end of the day, like imperfect dad right here by every stretch of the word, imperfect. I just can't remain angry at my kids. Maya comes popping up and she's like, Pops, you still angry at me? Yeah, yeah, no. I want to be. She gives a little puppy dog eyes, you know. Zach, I'm sorry, Dad. Can't remain angry forever. Some, sometimes as a dad, I let my kids 
sweat it out a little bit because they, it's good for them. They need to sweat it out a little bit. I can't do everything for them, right? I want, that's how they learn and grow. And, and yet I, I don't want them sweat it out forever. I come and I meet them there. That's God for his people here. That's God for Naomi. That's God for you. It's reason to sing praises this morning. Psalm 30, verses 4 and 5 is reason to sing praises this morning. It says this, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, to give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment. So his face is turned but for a moment. But get this, his favor is for how long? How long? It's for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Do you realize that your mistakes won't turn God's face from you forever? Even those deliberate, rebellious, I'm going the other way, God. They won't turn God's face from you forever. Your circumstances can't take you out of God's realm of good for your life. He will come through for you when the time is right. And he is never far off. He's always right behind you, overshadowing everything in your life. God's kindness shows up to Ruth in that he comes and visits his people. And basically, it's an invitation for her to come back. It's the first one. God won't leave me hanging forever. Here's the second one in this passage. God's blessings will shine through in my bad times. God's blessings will shine through for me in my bad times. I think we can all see Naomi in us, can't we? We're pendulum swingers. It's either, it's either all terrible, it's a disaster, the world's caving in, the sky is falling, or it's all good, it's all glorious. Like, man, things are just so good, nothing can go wrong. Aren't you a little bit like that? I'm a little bit like that. Naomi's like that, and she gets so locked into the negative, though, that she can't see any of God's positive in this, whereas yet we look at what's happening here, and God is giving her a positive. He's giving her affirmation that he's still with her in the life of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. But she's so consumed with self-pity and whatever else that she can't even see it, even though it's right in front of her eyes. So Naomi says to her daughters, my own words, she's like, hey, guys, like, I got nothing for you. In this day and age, here's what's, what's really playing out here. In this day and age, when, when a, a man died, his brother would marry the widow and then provide for her and also carry on the family line. And so that, that was the kinsman redeemer. And in this case, in this case, like both, both sons were dead. And so she's like, I got, I got nothing. You come with me and it's going to be barrenness. It's going to be loneliness. You're not even going to be in your own country. Just, just stay home. Orpah's like, yep, I see that. Kiss, kiss, hug, hug. I'm out. Ruth, what does Ruth do? She, I'm not having it. I'm going, she, she clings to her, it says. Naomi doesn't even realize it, but God has given her a massive blessing that she wouldn't have to then go through life all by herself. And she's so blind to it, she's even trying to push the blessings away. Instead of embracing the blessings, she's pushing the blessing away. When you look at this statement here, in verse 14, that Ruth clung to her mother-in-law. It's a sign of how much Ruth loves her mother-in-law, but it's also, a, I think, a clear indication that God is also clinging to Naomi by giving her a blessing in someone to do life with in Ruth. Ruth is a reflection of God's kindness upon Naomi in the midst of all of her chaos and all of her hardship. Isn't it true that we can get so wrapped up in all the things that we 
think aren't happening, that should be, that we don't stop to look at what the blessings God is giving us are in the meantime. We get so consumed with looking inward and looking at taking an inward gaze that we don't look outward and upward and see that God is still good and God is still giving us good things. God always has good in our difficult. Always. Always. Well, not me, Pastor. You must have missed this one. I, I didn't get that. I, I, I'm the only one in the world that this has never happened to. Just, just stop for a minute. I know some of you come in here with pain in your hearts and, and difficulties. I, I get that. We're not minimizing that. I understand that. But stop and think of this. Think of the blessings that God has given you in the midst of all of your pain and hardship. Think of the spouse that still loves you and, and, and holds you up when you want to... When, spin into that spiral of despair and they won't let you. Think of, think of that child that meets you at the door and gives you a hug on your worst day even though you might not feel anything in your heart but they're just wrapping their arms around you and hugging you. Think of that friend that gives you the text or the email at just the right time with just the right verse to encourage you. Think of all the blessings God has given you. Because just like Ruth was clinging to Naomi, so God gives us blessings that cling to us to keep us reminded of his faithfulness and his goodness in our lives. Ruth is this, it's God telling you that he loves you and you'll never be able to shake his goodness. Naomi tried to fight it, we'd be better off to not fight it and as hard as it is, just accept, okay God, it's hard, but I will accept the blessings that you give me. Ezra 8.22 says this, The hand of our God is for good on all those who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all those who forsake him. I want to remind you today that God is for his children. All the time. Every time. Some of you just need to hear that today, right now. God is still for you. As hard as life has gotten, God is still for you. And get this, God is also working out his greater purposes in your life. God's greater purposes is the last point here under God's goodness. Some of the goodness that God's giving Naomi, God's greater purposes are always playing out. As amazing as this story is that this daughter-in-law loves her mother-in-law so well that she's willing to like give up her country and go back to another land for her, it's really not about a daughter-in-law's love for her mother-in-law. You know what this story is about? It's about, it's about God using Naomi's life to win a soul from Moab and, and ultimately to graft in a Gentile woman into his ultimate plan of redemption of which we play into as well. bigger deal out of this first chapter is this. If you think about all that we just talked about quickly so far, the bigger deal of this chapter is this. As messy as Naomi's life was, through this experience, through her faith, a new convert to Christ came out of it. Don't miss verse 16. So many times we can miss the, the plain simple passage the plain simple passage that means so much this is this is about a daughter-in-law's love for his mother-in-law but her mother-in-law but it's about so much more than that verse 16 reminds us of that this is one of the noblest gentile utterings in the whole old testament ruth says this do not urge me to leave you or turn from following you for where you go i will go and where you lodge i will lodge this is the key your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. 
Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. Yes, yes, I love you, Naomi. I love my mother. But you know what she's saying more? I've come to love God even more than you, Naomi. And of all, all this, what I want more than anything else, I want to be one of God's children. This statement here is a central and defining statement of God's covenant children throughout the whole Old Testament. I will be your God and you will be my people. What sets us apart? I will be your God and you will be my people. By faith. In this hard circumstance. In this difficult, difficult, wouldn't wish on anybody. Guess what God does? He uses Naomi to go to another country and bring back a new follower of God for himself. This is quite the story. Hopeless humanity, but God is brewing something bigger in Naomi's life, in Ruth's life, in your life, and in my life, through all of our calamities, God is brewing something bigger. Through Naomi's misadventure, God was orchestrating redemption in her life, redemption in Ruth's life, and ultimately he was doing this. He was reestablishing the family line into which Jesus Christ would be born. One to five. How could any good come out of this? He's reestablishing the royal priesthood line in which Jesus Christ will be born. Our Savior was born from this encounter. Ruth, look at this. Ruth became David's great-grandmother. You know how that story ends, right? The Davidic covenant, of which Jesus Christ, Matthew 1.5, comes from this whole thing. Truth is this, God uses your wanderings and your wilderness always to achieve his greater good. In your worst, you know what God is doing? He is constantly creating his best. Can't see it? Don't understand it, might not experience it even this side of heaven, but be assured that your life serves greater purpose than you know. It's more about, there's more to this life than your plan and your comfort. God has something bigger going on for his glory. I guarantee you this, if you were to bring Naomi here, come come in, Naomi, come in and stand right here and, and just tell us. Let me ask you one question. After all of this, after all of this transpired, after, after all of this happened, as hard as it was, would you just tell us right now, was it worth it? You know what she would say to us? My word's not hers. You know what she'd say? She, I, I don't think it'd be like, yeah, it was worth it. I think it'd be like, tears. All the emotions of a husband and sons and all wrapped up into joy and blessing and, and thankfulness. I'm sure she'd be like, you know what? It was worth it all. If I were to ask Ruth the same question, you know what Ruth would say? Was it worth watching your mother-in-law go through this to, to only be included in God's family and God's plan for all of creation? Would you, was, that, was that worth it to, to make the trek from your own country to a place you'd never seen or heard of before? And was it worth it? You know what she'd say? It was worth it. If you were to ask me, was it, was it worth it to, to read this story? Like, and all the pain that was happened there and the hardship, was it, wor- it was worth it for us because Jesus came from this. It was worth it. Let me ask you this in your own lives. 
If you were to know that the hardships that you are going through were to bring about God's awesome, great purposes and they were being accomplished through your hardships, would you in the end say it was worth it? If God used your life to bring hardship but then unsaved family and friends came to know Jesus through your hardship, would you say it's worth it? You have no idea what God is orchestrating through your life in your pain, but you can be assured of this, that God has not left you and God is working and in the end, it will be worth it all. It'll be worth it all. Sometimes we have to take a step back and be reminded of these things because we get like Naomi. We just start thinking all the negative, all the bad, nothing good, nothing good. We focus on ourselves and not on Jesus and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And as this chapter ends, we see this last truth I want to point out for you is that God will ultimately see me through. God will ultimately see me through. God's blessings, God's kindness is still in Naomi's life. He sends her good news about the famine being over. He gives her Ruth to walk through life with. He redeems Ruth and, and, and is doing something far greater than they could ever have planned through this, through reestablishing his priestly line in Ruth. And, and yet look at in verses 19 to 22. Naomi still can't quite see it. She's so consumed by her hard circumstance. She can't see that God is ultimately going to see her through. Look at verse 19. So the two of them, Ruth and Naomi, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? The women said, is this Naomi? You can hear it already, right? The phones are ringing. The tongues are wagging. Here comes Naomi. Here comes she, It's not the hero's welcome. It's like, the pff, Naomi's back. Here comes the mess up. Here's the one she's like now. Naomi gets that. She's got her head hung low. She says this. She's like, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, went with her who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley of the barley harvests. Ultimately, what we see here in the first chapter is God is already bringing this story into a complete circle. They started in Bethlehem, land of plenty. God's presence went away, are coming back to Bethlehem, land of plenty and God's presence. One of the themes of this chapter, 12 times in this chapter, is the word return or something like it. Get this, God will always return the wandered and redeem your circumstances in your life. Naomi left full, had a husband, some boys, everything was good, a nice little Christian life. And she came back empty, still doesn't see the blessing of Ruth. Empty heart, nothing to give, nothing but what it says here is calamity. Verse 21, she says, the calamity is all I have, yet yet we're going to find out that the story continues. The story's not done after chapter 1, thank the Lord. We're done chapter 1 today, but the story's not done in chapter 1. What we're going to learn as we go through chapters 2, 3, and 4 is this. That God's path to the mountaintop often runs straight through the dark valley of the shadow of death. Death. 
God's path to the mountaintop often runs right through the valley of the shadow of death, the dark forest that none of us like. We all want to get out of from underneath. We all want to think that God would never do that in our lives because he is good on our terms. And yet truth of scripture that God ordains difficult circumstances at times for his people to accomplish something bigger in their lives than you could ever do on your own. It's not insignificant that this chapter ends with this, that they came back to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. They left in spiritual and physical famine, got to spiritual famine, came back, and it's going to be a physical harvest. It's going to lead to a spiritual harvest. Sometimes, just understand this in this chapter, sometimes, sometimes God allows us to taste the bitter. So we'll have full appreciation of the sweet. Sometimes God allows us to, to take a sip of the bitter cup only that we can have a full appreciation of the sweetness of his blessings. If we don't taste the bitter, we taste, take the sweet for granted. It's like us going on vacation down south where Benny comes from. And uh, we like our iced tea. You go down there and you order an iced tea. It's just disgusting. <laughs> because all they do is take tea and put ice cubes in it. There's no sugar. There's no sweetness. There's nothing. And you take a sip of that and you're like, this is gross. And then you get back home and you're like, man, do I love our iced tea ever the more. It's so good. It's so sweet. It's a sweet nectar, not a bitter herb. That's what iced tea is supposed to be. Do you realize that we can get so accustomed sometimes to God's blessings and God's goodness that we sometimes need a taste of the bitter to remind us how good and how sweet and how irreplaceable the blessings of God are in our lives? Don't miss the deep theology of this passage. Dire circumstances were orchestrated by God that Naomi and Ruth and ultimately you and I might taste the fullness of his good. That title there, Almighty. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Naomi is thinking this, of this in terms of a, a negative, the Almighty, but yet the, the, this, term, this, this phrase Almighty is also used in Genesis 17, Genesis 28, and Genesis 35 to talk about the Almighty God who blesses abundantly. The bitter always leads to the sweet when our lives are hidden in God. Do you believe that today? Even in the midst of your valley, do you believe that the valley leads to the mountaintop? Some of you might be in the valley today. You might be in that spiritual famine today. Maybe because you're just like Naomi and you have decided that you're doing it your way in your time, in your speed, and you're doing things on your own and you're in the valley. Some of you might be in the valley just because that's just what God has ordained and there's nothing you've done. Just God's ordained the valley irregardless you walk in here today feeling hopeless and that nothing good can come out of where you sit. It's my life. It's what it is. But know this today. God's kindness has not and will not ever fail you. God's kindness has not and will not ever fail you. God's already shown you. Get this. God's already shown you the greatest kindness he could show you in Jesus Christ. When he came and he brought us from being a foreigner to being a family member, when he brought us from being a, a, a fiend to a friend, God's already shown us ultimate kindness in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, we can be assured of this. 
That if we have Jesus, God is always right behind us, watching us, protecting us, and orchestrating every detail of our lives for our good and his glory. I love as we end chapter 1, I want to leave you with this thought, that this isn't the end of the story. There's more to come. I want to remind you wherever you sit today that this isn't the end of your story. There is more to be written. And God is busy behind the scenes orchestrating every minor detail even when you can't see him. He's orchestrating it all for your good and his glory. This is an amazing book that I pray you don't miss any of as we go through over the next few weeks. This is just the beginning. Let me pray. Father, as we close your word this morning, I pray that our hearts will remain open to what you want to do in our lives and through our lives for your glory. God, I want to specifically pray this morning for all those that are walking in here that are feeling like they have been abandoned by God, that are feeling like there is no hope for them in this, this circumstance that they are they are find themselves in, whether it's by their design and by their choices or by your design, God, and the choice you've made for them. God, I pray for them this morning that you would help them see in this moment that they have a God who loves them, that their God is overshadowing their whole lives, that they can't escape from the presence of their God. And Lord, I pray that you'd give hope where there is despair as we turn our eyes to the God who loved us and saved us. God, I pray you'd bring encouragement where there is discouragement. God, I pray you'd bring meaning where the meaning has been lost. God, I pray you'd bring joy where there's been discouragement as we turn our eyes and our hearts to Jesus. God, I want to specifically pray also this morning for that one or two people here that have not yet come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they are in a spiritual famine, and they know they are because they have walked away and have never truly come to Jesus. God, I pray for them today that they would know that the spiritual famine can be over and they can have a fullness of life in Jesus Christ, that the harvest is coming, and that they would, Lord, repent of their sins turn to a Savior and determine to walk as you ordained us to walk in your path. For all of us, Lord, help us to know the deep kindness and the deep love of our Father. You're so good to us, God. Forgive us for missing it so much in our lives. Forgive us for trying to live independent of you. Bring us back, Lord, right now into your holy presence. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. For more information, please visit our website, harvestniagara.ca.